1: approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best.
0: You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing.
1: Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing.
2: Very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker.
1: Now we're beginning with Brexit. It's a Brexit special, in fact, because it is a rather special day. It's the end of the final round of negotiations, uh, tending to sort out, or trying to sort out, I should say, what's going to happen once Britain finally formally ends its interim period and leaves. Now... Fears are growing. The UK will crash out of the EU at the end of the year with no trade deal because there's been precious little progress. Sources have told Bloomberg that two sides remain far apart on crucial issues like fishing, despite a deadline for agreement looming at the end of this month.
2: At the same time, Roger, Germany's ambassador to the bloc is warning that the post-Brexit deliberations could drag on through October, extending uncertainty for businesses and for the public. Michael Klaus said that a deal is still possible, but the UK needs to have a more realistic approach, in his view. He says we cannot have full sovereignty and at the same time full access to the internal market.
1: Sounds rather like the cake, having the cake and eating it, which I remember was a famous phrase, of course, during the last round of Brexit negotiations. For more, we're joined by Anand Menon, Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. Anand, welcome to the programme once again. Thanks very much. There's a sense of ground talk day about all this. But what are the main areas of disagreement left?
3: Uh, Well, when you say left, it's not like any of the main areas of disagreement have actually been resolved as yet. And they're the same as they've been since the very start. There's the question of fisheries, which on an aggregate economic level is a bit silly because fisheries are quite trivial economically for both the UK and the EU. But both sides have dug their heels in and what each side is asking for is irreconcilable with what the other side is asking for. And there are these so-called level playing field conditions. The EU wants the UK to sign up to minimum standards on environmental protection, workers' rights, And to its rules on state aid, the UK side is saying, but hang on, we're leaving the EU, that means we're not going to be tied by EU rules. So there's a gap between the two sides there. And finally, just the overall sort of philosophy of the negotiations, if you like, the EU are very keen that everything is resolved in one deal under one institutional framework. Uh, the UK is saying, no, we don't need to do that. We can just do a selection of different sorts of deals covering different areas that are completely separate from each other. And on that, again, there's been very little movement uh, by either side.
2: Okay, so fisheries, not that big, we know. But trade in services is incredibly large and very important to the UK. So do you spy any progress um, in the areas of trade in services and also security?
3: Well, on services specifically, uh, very little in the way of progress. The British government has made quite an ambitious ask in the way of services. So, for instance, uh, one of the things we're after is recognition of qualifications that allow professionals to go and uh, sell their services in the European Union. The problem with services is this, that the barriers to trade are not tariffs or quotas or all the things that affect goods. They tend to be the rules each side has in place. And of course, that runs slap bang into the UK government's red line, which is we don't want to be bound by EU rules. What the EU say is you're either bound by our rules or it's hard to sell services. So there's a bit of an impasse on that. Uh, On security, more generally, uh, there hasn't been that much discussion of it as yet, which in itself, I think, is cause for concern. But there are two issues, I think. One uh, we will be outside of decision-making institutions when it comes to foreign and security policy, So it's not clear how great a role Britain can play in collaborating with the EU there. And when it comes to things like police cooperation, anti-terrorism cooperation, the key issue is actually data. Unless we get an agreement with the European Union that gives us access to the various EU databases on people of interest to security forces, we automatically lose all our access from the 31st of December this year. And that will seriously hamper crime fighting in this country.
1: Let me ask you the question, which which I think was the title of one of your reports, of course, quite recently, which is what would trading on WTO terms mean? Because in the most basic sense, it's held up as this potential disaster, not least, of course, coming on the back of all the damage that's been done to the UK economy uh, through the virus crisis. But if it actually happened and we wake up the next morning, I mean, what sort of landscape is there? What will actually happen?
3: Well, it's worth just being clear. The WTO provides a floor, a basic sort of guideline as to what states, all states who are members, have to do to try and make trade as easy as possible. But the thing is, that floor is quite low. States aren't asked to do very much. So if we start trading on WTO terms, that automatically means that there will be tariffs on uh, goods, agricultural goods in particular, going uh, into the European Union. There will be checks on products going into the European Union. And if we as the UK say, okay, we're not going to charge tariffs or we're not going to have checks, The one thing that WTO rules is absolutely clear about is if we do it for the EU without having a free trade agreement with them, we have to do it for every single country that is a member of the WTO. And that's quite a big ask. Not checking goods that come in from any other country in the world because we're not doing it with the European Union raises all sorts of health and safety and sort of public health issues.
2: Hmm. Okay. Uh, but then politically, I suppose, in all of this, um, can Boris Johnson afford a no-deal exit? Um, indeed, would that not actually be better for him uh, in some ways? Um, you know, Because there are still many of his own MPs who want Brexit uh, done and completed, sort of no questions asked.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could pass that question in several ways. Firstly, because in a sense, Brexit legally has been done. We're no longer a member state. The big issue now, the two big issues now are whether we try and extend this transition period that keeps trading terms with the EU the same as they were when we were a member state. And I think the simple answer to that is the government won't do that because it said it won't and it's committed to delivering on what it said. The second thing is, on the deal itself is I think I'm pretty certain that the government would rather leave with a deal than without a deal. Why? Well, several reasons. Firstly, a deal would be less damaging economically than no deal. And a deal, for instance, if we end up leaving with no deal, it makes the border, the customs and regulatory border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, even harder because goods would have to be checked in a way they wouldn't if we had a trade deal that uh that dealt with goods the other thing of course is politically it's a better look for the prime minister to say look despite all the you know the doomsters and gloomsters as he would put it uh i've managed to sign a trade deal and it's a great trade deal i've delivered on what i said so i think the prime minister would rather have a deal that being said all the signs from the british government are they wouldn't want to deal at any cost if they can't get the sort of deal they want they are perfectly willing to walk away with that one
1: well, you mentioned the Irish dimension to all this. and In fact, we're going to be talking to an Irish member of the European Parliament in the next part of the programme, examining some of the issues uh, about the borders that might exist between Northern Ireland and the Republic. But actually, let's pick up on something that's quite interesting, which is, OK, if not a deal with the EU, what other deals could be on the table? We've heard a lot of push about US-UK trade deal. Uh, there there might be all kinds of options I suppose we were speaking to Patrick Minford this morning the economist famously pro-Brexit talking about the opportunities out there but I I mean are there many big deals on offer well I mean all the countries in the world are out there and
3: we're very free to negotiate with them Uh, there are several things to bear in mind I think one that geography matters when it comes to trade countries tend to trade far more with countries that are near them than countries that are far away so uh, the Treasury's own figures Uh, forecast that if we sign trade deals with China, with Indonesia, with the United States, they won't serve to make up economically for the trade we're going to lose with the European Union simply because we trade so much more with the European Union. The other thing to bear in mind, I suppose, is the impact of the pandemic on trade. International trade has crashed following the pandemic because of, uh, you know, far less shipping, far less air travel, far less cross-border trade going on. And one of the political impacts of COVID, I think, has been that many governments are now saying, actually, the pandemic has shown how dangerous it is to be reliant on international supply chains, to not be self-sufficient on things like food, medical supplies, uh, drugs and things like that. So coming out of the pandemic, even if the British government were to say, OK, we're going to gamble on international trade, it's far from clear how much international trade there is going to be or whether or not the people we're trying to sign trade deals with are actually becoming more protectionist and more hostile to free trade. So it's quite a gamble.
2: Yeah, uh, interesting. Um, what about, you mentioned coronavirus, uh, through all of this crisis, how much cooperation do you think there's actually been between the UK and the EU when it comes to the pandemic? I mean, PPE was, was one issue, if you recall, You know, right at the beginning um, when the UK government did not want to... Uh, be involved it would seem in the group purchase of PPE that um that the EU was undertaking.
3: Absolutely. There's been very little in the way of collaboration in fighting COVID between the UK and the EU. It's worth pointing out actually that one of the striking things if you look at Europe as a whole throughout this pandemic is how all the states in Europe, even the member states of the European Union, have failed to learn lessons from each other. So the Italians uh got the virus badly first But each country, even though some developed it later, made exactly the same mistakes as the Italians about not getting into lockdown quickly enough, not ordering sufficient stocks of PPE. There's been an absence of an ability to learn from each other's mistakes that's been true across the European Union and doesn't just apply to us in the UK.
4: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stifel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stifel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful Advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestiefel.com.
0: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member
2: SIPC and NYSE.
1: Caroline, let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics.
2: So let's start with the tracing app. The new NHS coronavirus contact tracing app should be in place by the end of the month after lengthy delays. That's according to the business minister, Nadeem Zahawi, uh, who said that the app, which was trialled, of course, if you remember, on the Isle of Wight, will be, quote, uh, running as soon as we think it is robust
1: also masks face masks uh, we've all got to wear them at least if we're on public transport now here in england the british medical association says masks shouldn't be restricted to public transport it's been confirmed face coverings will be mandatory on buses and trains in england from the 15th of june but the doctors union say they should be compulsory anywhere social distancing isn't possible now that could include supermarkets but the transport secretary grant Shapps says they don't pose a threat
3: I think the big difference on public transport is that you're likely stuck in a space for a longer period of time, whereas in a supermarket you might go past somebody quite quickly. So it is also a factor of the amount of time you spend with somebody. And on public transport, you could be there for 10, 20 minutes, half an hour.
2: So, Grant Chaps, there speaking. Uh, Meanwhile, consumer confidence dropped towards the end of May, despite the easing actually of some of the coronavirus restrictions. Sentiment was the weakest since the financial crisis, according to a flash measure from GFK. Households also became more gloomy about the outlook for the economy and their own financial situation over the next year. At the same time, retailers saw record online sales last month as trading more than doubled, according to the BDO retail sales tracker. But, Roger, it still didn't Make up uh, for the impact of empty high streets and total like-for-like sales uh, slumped by the most in um, by almost a fifth rather for the month when it comes um, you know to the overall retail sales picture.
1: Yeah, it's a very grim picture out there and. Also, we've been talking about on the programme the apparent uh, discrimination that seems to be going on in terms of the effect of the coronavirus, the fact that people of a BAME background do seem to be disproportionately affected, and the Equality and Human Rights Commission is beginning an inquiry into racial inequalities exposed by the pandemic. Earlier this week, Public Health England said people from a BAME background were up to twice as likely to die with COVID-19.
2: So those are some of our uh, political stories that we're looking at. Now let's get back to our Brexit special coverage Uh, as this week sees the final round of negotiations uh, between the UK and the EU, but they seem about to end without an agreement. The stalemate increases the risks of a no-deal Brexit, an outcome that would be particularly detrimental to the Irish economy, of course. But deal or no deal, the Irish border will still be a key concern. UK government documents recently revealed there would be some light customs checks on the island of Ireland, and that has drawn sharp criticism from Irish politicians. Well, for more, we're joined by Billy Kelleher, who's Irish MEP for Fianna and the Renew Europe Party. Really good to speak to you, Billy. Thank you for being on the programme. Can any sort of deal, even a piecemeal deal, actually be achieved by...
5: Well, you certainly would hope so. I mean, clearly, I mean, uh, a crash-out Brexit with no agreement between the EU and the UK wouldn't be good for either the European Union, the UK, or for the island of Ireland. In fact, it would have uh, devastating consequences for... Uh, particularly the Northern Ireland economy, but um, the Irish economy and the UK economy as well. So I think it's in everybody's interest that, you know, some form of a deal uh, would be achieved. Now, whether it can be a deal that has all the intricacies and complexities that are required in traditional trade deals, or whether it could be something that could set in train a process whereby they would be able to deal with some of the more complex issues at a later stage. But if we have a crash out on the 31st of December of this year... Well then it will have a very, very negative impact on um on business and on employment and I suppose on the challenges facing the UK, Ireland and Europe because of the downturn in our economies, uh, the coronavirus epidemic and the problems that it has uh impacted on business as well. So for all of those reasons I'd still be hopeful that there'd be enough common sense in the UK and the European Union to try and come to some form of a compromise that might allow decisions to be made at a later date on the complex issues or on those that are causing difficulties.
1: But, Billy, I mean, in the end, it does come down to, I suppose, a perception of who is willing to give ground. Do you think the UK government actually now wants a deal, or are they just actually manoeuvring towards uh, leaving uh, without a deal on December the 31st?
5: Well, I presume there's two things at stake here. Firstly, there is an ideological view around Brexit within some in the British government. And, you know, when you're dealing with an ideological view, well, then practicalities uh, take second place. But, I mean, uh, you know, British governments traditionally have also been very practical and they are good at diplomacy negotiating. So you would still think that there would be enough common sense to realise that a a delay with, you know, to address some of the more complex issues um, in trade deals... uh, would be to the benefit of everybody. Uh, the decision has been made. Uh, the withdrawal agreement has been uh, passed. We're now into what's the, the second phase of the negotiations around trade itself. So you have complexities in the areas of fisheries, uh, which is a very emotive issue, both in the European Union and the UK particularly as well. So even though it is a very small part of the overall UK economy, it seems to be a, um, a lightning rod flagship issue of um, concern for the UK negotiating team but equally the European Union would have huge concerns about that too. But I think that if you look at the Select Committee of the, of the EU House of Lords report recently by um, Lord Canoole I think is, is was the the author of that chairperson, it does outline that you know if there is no deal uh, it will have a devastating impact particularly on Northern Ireland and I think people who want it in the UK um and then the European Union would want to look at that as well. I mean, Ireland will obviously, um, it will have an impact, but it won't have the devastating impact that it could have as opposed to the economy of Northern Ireland. So for all those reasons, there is the political requirement of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, as it is titled, to address the issues of concern uh, for, for Northern Ireland. So the issue around the protocol, what checks would be required on goods moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland and those that would be at risk of moving from Northern Ireland into the European Union through Ireland. All of these issues will have to be addressed in a meaningful way. Otherwise, we Billy, could end up with a situation.
2: Yeah, really. as things stand, though, um, the UK needs to extend to, to, to request the extension by the end of June. Do you think that this government is going to do that? And if they don't do that, do you think that Ireland would reject, let's say, the request for an extension if it came a few months later?
5: Well, no, I don't think Ireland uh, would reject um, a request for an extension. Uh, In fact, I mean, we've always been saying, and we have made this case both from a government, from a parliament point of view, and when we're speaking to the European Parliament as Irish MEPs, that, you know, we want to see a friendship arrangement in place. We don't want to see the UK at loggerheads with the European Union. We don't want to see the impact that that could have on people's lives on the island of Ireland. So for all those reasons, the Irish government and the Irish people would be very flexible in allowing for... uh, a longer transition phase to iron out any of the challenges and difficulties and complexities that are that are now seem seeming to be insurmountable. But I'm quite yeah. confident with goodwill on both sides and a bit of extra time, well then those issues could be addressed. But what well, I you mentioned
1: is extra time there, Billy, and that is a key, key point because we're talking about a very strict timetable. Would, well, you would are, your well, government you are, but do you, you think want to go and actually say, look, hang on a sec, let's extend further? I mean, could you could you see that working, or perhaps finding a way to um, to to change the the status? Because you in in Ireland have most to lose, some would say, by what's going to happen.
5: Well, I think the people, well, obviously the island of Ireland would be the one that's most impacted in the sense that you would have uh, an international trade border uh, right down the middle of the island uh, with both sides uh, in dispute over trade. I mean, that certainly isn't good for anybody. But bear in mind, uh, a crash out Brexit will have a devastating impact on the UK economy as well. I mean, you know, if you look at all the statistics and figures, I mean, the, the reality is that there's a huge flow of trade between the UK and the European Union. So it's in nobody's interest to have a crash, out other than those that see it from an ideological perspective. But I think if there's certain areas that can't be addressed in the short and medium term, that they could be sidecarred, um, you know, pushed off into the side uh, and that you would have... Uh, some form of formal trade deal by the end of the year, and those very complex issues could be put into some form of um, arbitration system, uh, so that we can all get on with our lives and that we bring a certain amount of certainty. Bearing in mind, businesses in Northern Ireland, you know, are unsure of what's going to happen, what type of uh, checks will be on uh, goods coming from the Great Britain into Northern Ireland, what obligations, um, you know, criteria. Uh, and all the costs associated so there's great uncertainty in northern ireland among the business community and the most recent report as i referred to by the select committee in the house lords so, refers to that so, so, we Billy, do we so you accept
2: that there would be some that there would be checks
5: well there'll have to be checks between great britain uh, when i say great britain i mean the island of uh, great britain and northern ireland uh, what we don't want is checks between northern ireland and the republic of ireland And that was the idea of the the protocol, the Irish protocol, that was uh, written into the withdrawal agreement. So, in other words, any checks would be between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and there would be no checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And that is the essence of the Irish protocol. The idea being that it's only for goods that come from either England, Scotland or Wales into Northern Ireland... Um, the only time they would have to declare customs would be in the event of there being a risk of them moving into the Republic of Ireland. Otherwise, there should be free movement.
1: Um, yeah, and, and, but Billy, Billy, in the end, that point about the border between the Republic and Northern Ireland, there's a strong chance there's going to be visible barriers, and that's that's dangerous, even politically, isn't it?
5: Well, if you have a crash-out Brexit uh, in the sense that there's no formal agreement between the UK and the European Union, well then, the the European Union is obligated to protect the integrity of the single market. I mean, uh, clearly that's the most fundamental principle on which the European Union is built, is around free movement of goods and services, free movement of people, and the integrity of the single market. So if the UK does not live up to its obligations about the Irish Protocol, if it breaches its, um, I suppose if it breaks its word in terms of what it's signed up to in the withdrawal agreement, well then that does put huge pressure on the issue around um, the the border on the island of Ireland and checks on the border on the island of Ireland. But I would still hope that the UK, I mean it's a a nation um, that, you know, stands by its word, honours its word and I would be hopeful that they see the protocol as an integral part of the reflection of the Good Friday Agreement in the overall uh, agreement between the European Union and the UK. Bear in mind, you know, we have a Good Friday Agreement. It was signed by the UK and and the Irish government. It's an international agreement and it must be honoured.
1: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.